Oh, good morning, everybody. How you doing? It's good to see all of you here. Uh, and I mean that because um, I don't have great eyes, right? My eyes are not that wonderful. I remember getting glasses when I was in fourth grade. Uh, I came home with these nice, big, dark brown glasses. I thought I looked great until I met my sisters saw me, and they told me otherwise, right? I mean, that's what sisters are supposed to do, right? I had uh, many pair of glasses going on through elementary school and into junior high, and uh, then in eighth grade, finally, I got contacts. Game changer, right? Wonderful to have contacts. Uh, love that. And I had that till my mid-30s, and that's when I got LASIK, and that was even better, like amazing. But now, I'm in the, let's just say, the mid-century years, right? And uh, I can see, you know, uh, my eyes are changing again. So I can see up close just fine, but to see, like, especially in the dark, you know, um, uh, far away in the dark is very hard. So those of you, like, every once in a while someone comes up to me and says, hey, I'm sorry I fell asleep. You probably noticed. Like, I don't notice back there, all right? (laughs) So just, you know, uh, those of you in the front, three rows, I got you, all right? So be careful. But you know, that's, um, that's kind of how it is with our lives. Some of you are the same. Uh, you know, you can see far away, um, but not close, or vice versa. Um, some of you, you know, you're looking at that aspirin bottle and like, I don't, can't read this at all. Like, it is, I'm going to live by faith, you know, <laughs> as I take these things. So that's just part of life, right? Um, I bring that up because that's how we see life. But sometimes that's also how we see the Bible. We, uh, some of us are nearsighted, some of us are farsighted. Some of us, we, we can see it up close. We read all of this. We love, you know, Genesis, and we love all these stories. We highlight, you know, and we read the, uh, the Psalms and the Proverbs and the, the prophets, and we go all through the New Testament and all that, and we, we love it. We love all the, the proof that we have in the Bible, you know, how it proves uh, creation or all these different things. We see it up close, but it's hard for us to see, like, but what's the big picture? Like, how does it relate to me? Like, I think all these things are good and cool, but how, how does it relate? Where do I find myself in the story of the Bible? Or some of us, we see it far away. We see the big picture. We know it's about Jesus, but we're like, we don't know how, like, the Old Testament relates to the New Testament and how some of these passages relate. Why do we have these, some of these passages, you know, uh, like Joshua or, you know, all the war, things like that, like, it's hard for us to see it clearly. So my goal as your pastor is for us to be able to see both the big picture, but to see how it all relates, right? How the, each verse relates to uh, the whole, how it relates to our lives. It, more than that, though, I want to see the Bible transforming our lives and changing our lives, right? That we would love each other deeper. We would love God deeper. That we become more and more like Christ throughout our lives, that's part of the reason why we're doing this series called Kingdom Come, is we're looking through the Bible from one cover to the other, all right, we're doing it in big chunks, but we're looking at this theme that Jesus is infatuated with, this theme of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks about so much. The one thing that he says that make this your priority, seek this. The one thing that he says, pray that this would come right into our lives, the, the thing that he says is already here, it's in your midst, and he says the thing that will come in its fullness at the end of the times. So we're, we look at those things and try to see this theme throughout Scripture. 
Right? In the Old Testament, we see God's glorious plan to establish his kingdom. We see that in the Garden of Eden where he created this place, this beautiful place. He created people. He put them in there to rule, to subdue the earth, to be under him. We see that kingdom already starting to build. But we also see how that kingdom changed when Adam and Eve sinned and how it kind of just threw things. Uh, we see that through the scriptures, how we see this, uh, some people pursuing God, but many people do not, and the, the pain that that causes. We saw how it all came together, though, it, with, with David and Solomon, and how this glorious kingdom came together, right, where God was on the throne, he was ruling through the kings, the people were honoring him and worshiping him, and God's blessing abounded. But then we also saw how that fell apart. And through the prophet years, they were exiled. They were pushed far away. And the question as we kind of get to that point was, how can we get back into this kingdom? Will God's kingdom ever come back? What will it look like? And will will we be a part of it? Well, the answer is found in the promised king. See, all of that points towards one person. It all points towards Jesus. And as we begin the New Testament, we see this genealogy that says this is the story of Jesus Christ, right? The son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, he's, he's in this important line as king, as the one who fulfills these promises of God. It all looks towards him. He's our promised savior, our high priest, our perfect sacrifice, the faithful king. When all else failed, Jesus was victorious. Uh, last year, there was a children's Bible storybook that came out. Two volumes. This is, there's an Old Testament one, and this is the New Testament one. And whenever I see, I always love these kind of story Bibles because it, it's just interesting kind of how they make the Bible story so simple, right? But this one caught my attention. It's called The Kingdom of God. I'm like, we're studying the kingdom of God. How perfect is that? I'm going to read you the first page. All right, you mind? Everybody likes this. It feels like you're back, like, you know, in elementary school in the library with your librarian reading to you. But it says this. It says, for thousands of years, God has promised his people that he would send a Savior. God promised Adam and Eve that one of their offspring would crush the head of the serpent. God promised Abraham and Sarah that one of their children would be a blessing to the nations. God promised David that one of his sons would reign on his throne forever. Many people forgot God's promises, but some still waited and longed and hoped for a king to come. They had to wait a long time. It had been 400 years since a prophet had spoken. At last, that time had come. A new beginning was about to begin. The long-awaited king was about to arrive. If you're interested in the rest of the story, I have a copy up here. Come and get it. First one that comes gets it. But, uh, but you see that story of the kingdom, and you see Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings, right? For so many years, they had been waiting, but here Jesus comes. And Mark tells us in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, this is the first words that Jesus says, the time had come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. 
The time has come. What time? The time for fulfillment. The time for all of these promises that God had made with his people. They were now going to be fulfilled. This kingdom that we saw with David and Solomon that was so glorious and beautiful was now here. It was back with us. It was here with Jesus. The time had come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Good news was what would always precede the king. Whenever a king was coming, there would be announcing people to announce, there's good news. The king is coming. And that's what we saw. Jesus would teach his disciples how to see the kingdom, right? How to enter the kingdom and how to live in that kingdom. And that's what he brought. To remind you, if you've uh, been with us or if it's your first time, we've been defining the kingdom of God this way, that the kingdom is God's reign through his people over his place and with his blessing. Right? God is the one who reigns. He reigns through his people, over his place, with his blessing. And we've seen it in different places. We saw it you know, with Adam and Eve and in the, in the garden. We saw it with his presence, right? His presence was a blessing. But all of that now comes to Jesus. Right? It all comes on him. He is the person. He is the place. He is the blessing. He is the new Adam. All right, what Adam uh, failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus identified with Adam in the baptism. When he was baptized, he's identifying with, with Adam and his race. But he's the last Adam. Romans tells us this in Romans 5. It says, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, that's Adam, so also one righteous act fulfilled or resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so also the obedience of one man, the many were made righteous. So Jesus is that person. All right, he's also the place. All right, he is the tabernacle. We saw that in the Garden of Eden. That was a special place. You know, it, was, uh, it was Israel, the promised land, and it was the tabernacle. It was the temple. But John says that the he, Jesus, has come near. He has tabernacled with us. He is the place. And when we look for Jesus, we don't look towards the garden or the temple. We look at Jesus. And we see him, the fulfillment. We see him, God, dwelling with us. And the blessing, right? Jesus did that on the cross. His blood was shed for us so there would be a new covenant, a new way to have peace with God. Remember, if you remember way early on, we were talking about uh, blessing and curses. We said that the, uh, the curse is one who has been put outside of God's presence, right? Uh, Cain was cursed. He was put outside God's presence. But those who are blessed were in the presence of God, like Adam and Eve, and then like Seth and Enoch and other people. And here's what we see. We see this blessing coming where the curse is taken away through what Jesus did on the cross. And he brought us into this relationship with God where we had peace with him. We can come to God not being afraid, but coming because we are loved children of him. So that's the beautiful thing of what Jesus did. He brought all this together. The disciples were slow learners, right? It took them a long time, right? And I love that about the Gospels. They're very honest, you know. 
they, they didn't always get it. And that encourages me because it's taken me a while. And maybe it's taken you a while. Maybe you're still trying to figure this out. And that's okay. Because we're here. We are here to learn and let God transform us. Right? Knowing our lives are still, our spiritual lives are still kind of under construction. We're still growing. But today we're going to look at these four Gospels. We're just going to kind of do a summary of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And to see how we see the kingdom of God displayed in these different Gospels. And how it, why it matters to us. Right? We're going to see there's, you know, obviously in the Gospels, there's, they connect, you know, some of the Gospels are very connected to each other. But each one kind of stands out unique and different as it talks about a different thing. But these are super important because it shows us what the kingdom is. And the kingdom is, is not your normal kingdom as you would expect it to come. It's an, it's an upside down kind of kingdom. Or in other words, or better stated, our world is upside down and this is, shows us the right way. The right kingdom. Like, we're going to see that. And that's, I know that's cliche. I know that's been used many times. You know, the upside down kingdom. What's it mean? But Jesus is telling us, and he's showing us what this looks like. And it's not going to be what you expect. For instance, if you heard that a, a king was going to be born, where would he be born? It would be born in a palace. But where was Jesus born? In a cave. Right? Placed in a manger. Uh, if you were, uh, knew that a king was coming, the king would have a, a title. Before, when he was a child, he would be known as a prince. But what is Jesus known as? He's a refugee. He's an exile. He's a son of a carpenter. Criminal. He would die as a criminal. You'd expect a king to come and conquer the enemies in the land, but yet he was conquered by the Jews and the Gentiles put on the cross by the Romans. You would expect him to have a large army, and he says, yeah, my army is unseen. It's the angels, and they're going to hold back. I'm doing this on my own. We've got to understand that if there's a real kingdom, which there is, and if we, through faith, if we're Christians, if we stand with Christ, that we are citizens of this kingdom, that we don't take our cues from the world, we take our cues from who? Our king. But what did Jesus come to do? What kind of king was he? Did he come and say, I demand all of you bow down, get on your knees, kiss my ring? Does he say, all of you stand and rise and stand at attention? No, he was a king who came to serve, to sacrifice, and to suffer. And if that's the model that our king gave us, we've got to understand that that's how we're going to live. We're going to serve others. Put others first. We're going to sacrifice money, time, lots of different ways for other people. And there are times where we'll be called to suffer. And when we suffer, it's not because God hates us. It's not because we did something wrong. It's because suffering was the way that Christ led. He suffered. He died. He said, take up your cross and follow me. I can't say this without sounding like the Mandalorian, but this is the way, right? <laughs> they've, they've changed that phrase forever. This is the way. This is the way that our king led. This is the way that we will follow him. So what do we see? We see in the Gospels, 
All right, we see God's powerful rule and his reign, his authority. We're going to see that in Mark. We're going to see the people of the kingdom. We're going to see that in Luke. We're going to see the place of his kingdom in Matthew. And finally, the blessing of his kingdom. We find that in John. So we'll take them a little bit of out of order, but to fill that, um, our little pattern, that's how we'll do it. This will be quick. It'll be a survey. But I want you to be able to see that even through the Gospels, throughout all the Scriptures, they keep leading us to this concept of a king with authority that brings people into his kingdom with a great blessing. So let's see what it says. The first thing says this. In the Gospel of Mark, we see King Jesus rules and reigns with authority. He is the king with authority. He's a powerful king. We see that in in the first chapter. If you just open up Mark chapter 1, and you just look at what are the stories. What does Mark want to communicate to his readers in that first chapter? He wants to communicate power and authority. He uses this word authority a lot. He uses the word immediately, right? Because when a king says to do something, it needs to happen quick. Not slow, not over time, but quick. And that's what he says. The first few words that he says, when Jesus Uh, or when John is introducing him, he says, after me comes the one more powerful than I, in verse 7. The straps of his sandals, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Right? One who's more powerful. Then the first words of God in verse 11, it says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. These words coming out of heaven saying, you're my son. You are the son of God And then Jesus, his first words, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And then in verse 17, the next thing he says is follow me. So what do we have here? We see immediately that Jesus is the powerful son of God who says repent, believe, and follow me. That's a powerful king. So that's what we see in the first chapter. Do we expect to see that same thing? Do we expect to see Jesus come with this powerful fist, right, to reign and to rule? But instead, he comes with love and compassion, but he comes with authority. He comes with authority as we keep looking on in some of these stories that Mark tells us. In verse 21, it talks about his authority that he has. Right? He went into Capernaum, he went into this on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, and he taught. And the people were amazed at this teaching. He taught like someone who has authority. Right? A key word, They're totally different than other pe- the way other people taught. Then a man comes in the, the synagogue, possessed by an evil spirit. And what does he do? He says, be quiet, Jesus says sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit, spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. With just a word of his authority, the evil spirits leave. Then a man comes with leprosy, right? He begs him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Here's a a person with leprosy coming before the king. In a normal king, he would get out of the way, his guards would stop, get away from him. But Jesus comes and touches him, touches him, move with compassion. Touches the unclean person and makes him clean. Normally, it would be the opposite. Normally, Jesus would become unclean, but Jesus makes him clean. 
It's almost like this, his sickness is personified by like a good soldier who just kind of stands up straight, salutes, and about faces and leaves. So it keeps going on. We see these same things. He has authority to forgive sins in chapter 2. The man, the paralytic, comes and he's before Jesus, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who has authority to do that? Well, Jesus does. He heals the man. The man gets up and walks away. Not only healed, but forgiven. And then finally in chapter 4, the great passage where even the wind and the sea obey him. Right? He's sleeping. The disciples are all distraught and upset. And Jesus gets up and says, quiet, be still. And they say, who has authority over even the wind and the waves? See, Mark wants you to see very clearly that it's Jesus is the, the, the one with authority. So the question is, then, how do we respond to someone with authority like that? How do you respond to your king? So many people in our lives have been a, a testament to this. We rebel against the king. We fight against him. Because we want our will. We want our kingdoms. And we have tried to push him away, and we have tried to fight, but thankfully we have a God who pursues us, who keeps pursuing us, and still says, in, in your worst, in your nastiest, I still love you, and I'm still pursuing you. And so many of us have just surrendered and said, okay, it's not about my kingdom, it's not about me, it's about you. And we surrender to him, and we serve him. And we follow him, and we get to know him, and we get to know this is not an authoritarian God, someone who just wants to, to, um, to mess with us and cause us pain, but it's someone who wants to see people flourish and grow in his kingdom. So how do you respond to him? We serve, we sacrifice. And we'll take our cross even if it means suffering for him because he's a good king that we love and we will follow. So we see he's a king that has authority. Next, though, who are the people that are invited into his kingdom? We see King Jesus receives all people through faith. That's what Luke shows us. Luke, I mean, talks so much about the kingdom as well, but he's, he's interested more than the others about the people that, he, that Jesus ministers to. Right? He emphasizes the marginal, the rejected, the poor, the tax collectors, sinners, women, Samaritans, Gentiles, the socially and politically and spiritually disadvantaged individuals. He welcomes into his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is for you. The doors are open. Come. But there are some people that are, it's hard for them to get in the kingdom doors. Remember that? The, 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 the story of the rich? I mean, if you think about a normal kingdom, who are the normal people that are invited into this kingdom? It's the rich, it's the successful, the influential. But Jesus says, I'm, I, the doors are wide open for anyone to come in, but it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, right? It says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than the rich people to come. And that was just mind-blowing to disciples. And the disciples said, well, then if they can't come in, how are any of us supposed to come in? He says, what is impossible with men, God can do. And he says, he brings the doors wide open. He says, you can come in. You come through faith. 
but leave your kingdom, leave your things, and come in as you follow this king. There's this critical passage that, that Jesus shares when he's, um, when he's starting his ministry. He's in his hometown of Nazareth, and he opens up the scroll to Isaiah. And he reads it. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, and he set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the people were all upset because he said, today it's fulfilled. And he's saying that I am this person. I am the Messiah. But he's also, did you hear the words? He's saying, I've come to bring blessing to the poor. I've come to give recovery of sight to the blind, right? That's, he did that miracle so many times. He's bringing, he's setting the captives free. See, in the kingdom of God, the people that don't flourish on earth are going to flourish in the kingdom of God, right? They're going to flourish under his reign. He continues to, to do this, and he continues in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about the, those who are poor, those who are needy, right? For them, the kingdom of God has arrived. He talks about the Gentiles. The Gentiles are invited in this kingdom, and that was crazy because up till now, this kingdom was for Israelites, but the centurion who had this faith that no other Jewish person had, he plays this prominent part of the story that the Gentiles, the soldiers, are welcome into this. Uh, political enemies are welcome into this kingdom. And this is really fascinating to me anyway. But do you remember when Jesus picked his 12 disciples? He picked this guy named Matthew who was a tax collector. He was Jewish. He got taxes from other Jewish people, but he gave it to the Romans. So he was not liked. He was not loved. He was not appreciated. But God said, I'm going to bring this person into, uh, into my inner circle. But there was another person in there that would have been the polar opposite. whose name was Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot didn't want anything to do with Rome. Like they wanted to see Rome become, just come down. Right? Simon the Zealot would identify closer to, remember Barabbas? Remember when Jesus was arrested and Pilate says, who do you want me to crucify? Who do you want me to release? And they said, release Barabbas? Simon the Zealot would have had more in common with him. He would have been more of a hero. And so here's Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. They hated Rome and he like benefited from Rome. Yet they were both called to be Jesus' disciples. And I'm sure there were plenty of eye rolls you know, those first few years. But eventually... They were unified, and they understood their place. That even though they had totally different political backgrounds, that in Christ they were one, they were united. And guys, that's so important. Right now, we're coming into a very politically charged time in our culture, right? And there's a temptation to say, well, we're going to be with people that just vote like us. We don't want to be, you know, with others. But Jesus did it. And if he did it, we can have people from different political backgrounds all united under Christ because he comes first. He's the priority. The kingdom of God is the priority. So he brings people like that into his kingdom. Right? It continues. All these different people. Uh, Luke emphasizes women too. 
He says, women, you're going to play a part of this kingdom. And maybe right now that doesn't mean a lot. Maybe it does. I don't know. But back then it was, this crazy. All right, do you remember that story uh, with Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10? Uh, we read it and it's, it's powerful, right? But it was like, it was crazy. All right, here's what happened. Remember, Jesus comes and he's going to teach. He's the rabbi. And so the house fills with people and they sit down and listen to Jesus teach. Martha is there, like, you know, getting napkins and putting drinks and, you know, all kind of refilling cups. Here's some treats or whatever. I don't know what she's doing. She's serving. But remember, she gets grumpy. Who does she get grumpy at? Mary, her sister. He says, Jesus, can you tell her that I'm, like, suffering? I'm sweating back here. Like, it's just me. Can you have her come over and help? And he says, Martha, Martha, don't worry. Like, Mary has chose the right thing, to sit and to listen. All right, and we take that and we say, yeah, that's right, good, you know, it's important to serve, but it's important to listen. But that's crazy because women didn't sit at the feet of rabbis. They weren't welcome there. All right, it was men only. Men were the ones listening to the rabbis in the house like that or in the synagogue. And so when Jesus says, hey, it's right for Mary to sit here and listen, you should do the same thing too. It's blowing things up. Women are invited, not just invited in the kingdom of God, but they are important, special people to, who need to hear and learn and teach the words of Jesus. So Luke here, when he's writing about the people of this kingdom, he's saying that this is for each person, for anybody, wherever they're at, but you enter through faith. You enter this kingdom through faith. That's why the Pharisee says, where's this kingdom you talk about? He's like, you're not going to see it because you don't enter it by faith. But there's the poor and the, the sick and the needy. Are, they see it because they don't have a kingdom. They're coming into mine. So the question is, are you a member of God's kingdom? Are you in that group? And would you say, yes, I will enter and thank you, Lord, for opening the door to a person such as myself. Jesus also reigns over heaven and earth. For this, we go to Matthew. Matthew talks more about this heaven and earth concept than anybody else. In fact, just so you know, like he, Matthew says, he doesn't use the word kingdom of God as much as he uses the word kingdom of heaven because he's writing to Jewish people. Jewish people don't say the name God, so in a way to kind of divert that, he says the kingdom of heaven, right? Good, good on him. But in his gospel, he uses this like heaven and earth language more than any other gospel in any other book other than Revelation. But he's always connecting these things together. All right, blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. You're the salt of the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He says that twice. Jesus came to them. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Why does he say that? Like, isn't, you know, just heaven, isn't that the important thing? Don't we just wait till heaven? Or is God the, the one who rules over earth too? He does. He rules in heaven, but he rules on earth. He's going to continue to talk about this throughout this 
this, uh, through all his parables, they all relate heaven and earth together. The treasures found buried in the earth, all these different things. But he's a God that says, I am the God over both the seen and the unseen, the above and here. And that's important to us because so for so many years, as the Christian community, we have totally neglected the earth aspect of that. We just think of heaven far away. And I know I've said this about six times over the last seven weeks, right? But sometimes we just need to hear things more. We need to hear it again because through our whole lives, we've just heard that heaven is just a little floating around, right? This little disembodied spirits. But that is not found in Scripture. I'm going to read something to you from a guy named John Dixon. He wrote this book. He says, if I were God, I would end all the pain. Um, but he talks about this very topic, and I'm going to read it. It'll take a couple minutes, but I think it's, it's good, and I hope it answers um, some of our questions. But it says this, for many of us, even some long-time believers, our picture of kingdom come derives from an unlikely combination of ancient Greek philosophy and modern Hollywood movies. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato taught that the physical world is this kind of grubby reflection of the ultimate non-physical reality in which everything is headed. Buddhism and Hinduism, with their goal of nirvana, share a similar outlook. Somehow, Hollywood got a hold of that idea and almost always portrays the afterlife as an airy-fairy, fourth-dimensional existence with clouds, halos, bright lights, and the ever-present harp music. He says, in the years after I came to believe in Christ, I was always troubled with what it meant to enjoy the thought of escaping the physical world and entering the spiritual one called heaven. He says, I loved taste, smell, sight, sound, and the touch of this world. And here I was, be told, I was being told to look forward to losing those five senses and having this replaced with a sixth spiritual sense. I was not excited about that. But then someone challenged me, and pointed me to the biblical text to describe the afterlife as a disembodied nirvana-like bliss. I couldn't find it. Every passage I turned to challenged the Hollywood version of heaven. Then he says this, It turned out that the biblical kingdom come is not an ethereal place of clouds and ghosts, but a tangible place of real existence. It is a new creation. Whether or not we'll gain a sixth sense, I have no idea. But I think we can keep on counting the other five senses. This is a future I can get excited about. It's a life lived in the fullest sense of the word, a reality in which the mortal and physical tensions of our current world will be resolved through an extraordinary act of divine recreation. He says, when I find myself doubting if such a fantastic hope could ever become a reality, I only go out to the beach where I live and, or look at the night sky and remind myself that God has already done it once. The proof is already there before my eyes. Why should I question his ability to do it a second time? Does that make sense? That's something I get excited about. And Matthew, when he's talking about this, when he's talking about the place of God's kingdom, he's telling us that God, it is heaven, but it is earth too. It's tangible. And God is the one who is king over all eternity, over all places. They all belong to him. But last, last one, John. King Jesus blesses the world with eternal life. 
So John, in his book, he does not use the term kingdom of God much. It's in there a couple times, but he prefers other words, the king and world and life. Those we see throughout there. That he is the king, the king of Israel. We see that throughout there. We also see him use this word world, right? The whole world. And we see uh, as we read this gospel that the world is just ugly with Jesus. The world is ugly. They treat him so bad. Yet Jesus and God continue to love the world. And he loves them in such a way that he's saying, the world, we have, I have something for you. It's called life. It's called eternal life. And that's a gift that you can have. We know this famous verse from John 3. In John 3, he does talk about the kingdom of God, but he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, the world, right? God so loved the world, he gave them eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but they'll have life. That's his blessing that he gave. And so when he went to the cross, when he went to serve and when he suffered, when he suffered on the cross, he didn't go because he was a weak king. All right, he was weak. He didn't know how to command an army. He didn't know how to control his people that the Romans were more powerful and they overpowered him. That's not the story. That's not how he went there. Remember, he said, I could call my angels down right now and end this all. But my kingdom's going to come through sacrifice. My kingdom is going to come as I die on the cross, as my blood is shed. That's the sacrifice that needs to be paid. That's how you can come into this relationship with God and have peace not just for a day or for a minute until all next evil thought, but eternal life. Life with the king in his kingdom. So the Old Testament closes with the expectation of this kingdom. And you see kind of people kind of squinting, you know, in the Old Testament, squinting to see what does this kingdom look like. But then we see Jesus come on the scene, and he brings his kingdom. The kingdom is in your midst. It's a kingdom where he has the authority, right? He has it. We may not see him. We may not feel it, but he's the one with authority, right? He comes, and he says, you are my people, right? God has given you to me. He gathers people into his kingdom. We come into his kingdom, and we experience Right, this blessing here on heaven, here in heaven and earth, here and now and for eternity, as we have peace with God and experience eternal life. So the most important question is Jesus your king, are you in his kingdom? Will you submit to his authority? Will you surrender to him? If you have never done that, I encourage you to do that. Today's the day. Come and just say, I am sorry. I've been living life. With, I've been king. I've been on my own throne. Well, I need to get off that. I need to put that kingdom to death. And I'm going to enter you in your kingdom. Because I don't have to be afraid of this king. This king is full of love. And he says, you're my children. You're my loved ones. Come in. Come through faith. And if you are in his kingdom, 
If you're already in his kingdom, you are, you are his servant. How do we serve the Lord? How do we say, not my will, but your will be done? I want to know you. I want to serve you. I want to talk about my king. I want to promote you. I want to tell people about you. But what you have done for us. May we be a church that keeps our eyes on that king. May we be a church that we understand the gospel. We see it around us. or We see the kingdom. We see it around us. And we live in it. We enjoy it both now and for eternity. God's given us a beautiful world to enjoy. Go enjoy it. But always remember it comes from Him. So we thank God for what He's doing. He's given us a taste of heaven with His kingdom come. And may we do that for others. May we be this example to show the world what a kingdom looks like, a kingdom of love, of joy, of hope, of faith. Amen?